Hi, I'm Laura Hayes, and welcome to the Fox Family Law Podcast. We're here today for episode number seven of our series of eight, and our, I'm here with my associate, Jamie Lee Denton, and our guest for today is Dr. Ray Levy, who is a clinical psychologist here in Dallas, focusing his practice on collaborative divorce, reunification, and then also just a general practice seeing adults. Um, adolescents and children. Welcome to our podcast, Dr. Levy. How are Thank you? Thank you very much. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yes, well, we're happy to have you. So we kind of wanted to talk today about the role of a mental health professional in a divorce case, and we want to touch on, you know, what you do in the collaborative law area as well, but I'll let you kind of start telling us how mental health professionals can help people going through a divorce or a high-conflict custody case. Um, as I'm sure if you're, you're aware, any divorce, even if it's not high conflict, involves a lot of emotions, and it's very painful emotions. We're talking about the loss of a dream, the loss of a, a union, um, and this is very similar to a death. I mean, people will go through the stages of grieving for this, and it's important not to just let people go through it um, without someone else there. Many times we need a professional or someone to sort of help them, keep them from being stuck. I'm sure you and I know a ton of people that have been divorced for years and they're still very resentful, still very angry. They haven't been able to move on. They're stuck. And these are the people that I think could have really benefited early on some mental health intervention. And many of us are trained in just how to do that, how to help people going through divorce. I've helped quite a few people just either as a couple or individually just be able to move through it and get through it even though there it feels awful it's just like any other death it's just you have to keep your feet moving right and I think you know I have a lot of clients who come to me when they're they're blindsided or they're surprised by the divorce um, and so it's very obviously upsetting and then I find that being able to proceed with a divorce, whether it's we go to mediation or we go to a trial, if they're not past that initial emotional stage of grief or just, you know, being, just dealing with the process of the divorce, if they're not there, it's hard for me to make them comfortable with the process of divorce themselves. And so I try to, you know, refer clients to people like you to address those things. But I think it's really important, like you said, to address them early on Otherwise, the whole process becomes a lot more difficult than it already is. Absolutely. So these people really get way too stuck. And, um, you know, people either go into divorce wanting it, and sometimes we have what's called, um, they really feel, they have um, divorce remorse. Basically, they feel that they gave, gave away everything in the divorce. You know, I want the divorce. Um, I, you know, my wife didn't, and I'm leaving the kids, and I'll give them everything, you know, the house, the car, everything, the 401k, and I'll just live on just meager rations because I want it out. And sometimes there's another person that wants it all, and they, they go to courts expecting that they're going to talk to a judge. The judge is going to go, oh, my gosh, yes, life has been very unfair in that your spouse has been awful, and we're going to give you everything. And neither one of those are good, and neither one of those usually happen either. There's something in between, and that's usually what happens, and both people in a litigious divorce often end feeling 
very upset and very um, misrepresented. And it's nothing about the lawyers. They just think that they should be getting everything. This is a mindset that they often have, and this needs to be changed. That's not how divorce is. <clears throat> it's kind of like a war. If no one ever leaves feeling great. There's always casualties. Absolutely. And, you know, that's, that's true between the parties, but also the kids. Um, I try to, you know, and I think you can probably provide a lot more insight than I can on this, but, you know, I try to explain to parties, even if they're upset at their spouse for whatever they did to cause the divorce, if they fight and they litigate it for months or years, at the end of the day, the kids who suffer because the kids can feel all of that tension. And then if you go and you sling all the mud at trial and you hate each other, you did, how are you going to co-parent? I, I think it's, I, I explain it to my clients where if, it's hard to co-parent anyway, but then if you've gone and you just pulled up all the dirt and the ugly parts of your marriage and you had your day in court, it's even harder to co-parent um, and harder to repair that relationship when you have kids that you still have to deal with even after the divorce is over. Well, that's one of the, the toughest questions. Um, Laura, see, one of the things we know, and there's a bunch of research on divorce, is that not the divorce is what's so upsetting for the kids, it's the conflict. Mm -hmm. The conflict between the parents, whether they're married or not married. <clears throat> Excuse me. They, but the, the conflict is what's the most disturbing and the most upsetting and causes the most mental health issues later on. And parents need to be able to co-parent because, again, they may not want to be husband and wife, but they're still mother and father. And they struggle doing that if there's been a contentious and litigious divorce. There's, it's very, very difficult to, to negotiate and talk about the day-to-day -day activities with someone that you absolutely hate and abhor or feel the same about you. So we do struggle with that, and we really try to help clients understand that to be able to co-parent, they need to let go of some of this anger and, and stop personalizing it so much. Now, it's harder with some people because they personalize everything, but we definitely recommend that. Right. And I think the hardest part, you know, for me, you know, when I talk to my clients that, that they want to litigate, they want their spouse to, quote unquote, pay for whatever, you know, bad thing they've done. But I get a lot of same questions about how do I co-parent with someone who's a narcissist or how do I co-parent with somebody who is alienating my child from them? And I, you know, those, those questions seem to pop up a lot. So from your perspective, how would you help those clients who really truly want to co-parent but believe they just can't because of the various personality traits they believe the other spouse has? Um, let me ask, answer that in two parts. First, how do we help? people co-parent and then how do we help them co-parent when there's a sort of a mental illness or personality disorder involved. Um, first of all, some of the things we do with co-parent is literally teach them basic communication skills, things that they know but you forget when you're emotional. Remember, we all get drunk with emotions and we forget and lose our basic uh, ability to talk and think rationally. So we'll teach them I statements or how to be empathetic and do empathetic listening. Um, or not to uh, talk over somebody, um, just simple things of how to reframe and, and um, ask for clarification. Just simple techniques that anybody says, oh yes, 
at work we had a training and we learned all that stuff. I just don't do it with my spells or ex-spells. We said, absolutely. So often we have to refresh that. Now, when you have something like a personality disorder, I'm talking about a personality disorder like a, um, a narcissist, <clears throat> excuse me, or someone who has a borderline personality disorder, um, or someone who might be actively alienating the kids, that's very common that you will need a third party. These are things that you really can't negotiate yourself. I mean, obviously, if you were married to a narcissist, you're getting a divorce probably likely due to the narcissism, and because you felt like you couldn't be, wouldn't, couldn't be heard and um, everything that you said was turned around on you, um, what people often refer to as gaslighting. And so we often say that, look, with a narcissist, if you have a narcissist, you're not going to get them to change. You just want to get out as soon as possible. There's nothing you can say. There's nothing a therapist can say. <clears throat> There's nothing a lawyer can say that's going to have a narcissist go, oh, my gosh, thank you. You're right. It was me. Um, it is just getting that distance and keeping things very clear. A lot of times that's where a parenting plan comes in. In the divorce decree, it's very clear. There's no... Um, give or take on it. It's like your child has to be back at 5 o'clock, not 5.15. And again, these are things that sometimes narcissists or people with personality disorders need. They need the law to set some very clear criteria for what they have to follow. Now, the problem is it can get very costly for them because if the, if the spouse doesn't follow it, they have to, you have to take them back to court. But we often say if you have a um, a spouse that has some kind of personality difficulty, you want to get out as soon as possible, keep as much distance, have as little contact, use our family wizard, you text three sentences max, that's it. We, we just give them very specific rules, but there is no wonderful way to co-parent with someone who's that sick. It just becomes too difficult. And we know, um, we know that a lot of times people think their spouse is a narcissist or has some sort of disorder and you get in there and they really don't. How do you break that to the spouse who's convinced that that's why their marriage is falling apart? Um, very subtly, Jamie Lee, that's a great question. You know, you have to validate the person who's thinking my husband's a narcissist or my wife's a narcissist. And then you said, well, this behavior shows me that they possibly may not be. Um, or tell me about the behaviors. And you have them break down the behaviors. Um, as you know, we throughout the decades, um, there are certain diagnoses that are just very popular. Um, back in the 80s, it was ADHD or ADD. Um, in the 90s, it was Asperger's or autism. Um, in the 2000s, it was bipolar. Now it's narcissism and gaslighting. And many lawyers I've talked to said when um, a spouse comes into their office looking for a divorce, they even if they want collaborative whatever, they often use the word narcissist to describe their ex or seem to be ex. So many times we get that. It doesn't mean that they are. They've read a book. They've read something online. They've talked to a friend <clears throat> and think that, well, for sure, this is this guy's a narcissist. Um, and uh, by the way, I, we usually see narcissists thrown around more as a description of men than women. Um, although men are just as good at throwing negative labels at their wives. So I don't want to just um, pinpoint one gender. 
Uh, and, and they're just as wrong. It's just a very gentle nudging them and going, that's not exactly what I'm seeing. Maybe you want to look at it differently. Or this is another way to see it. And it's just a very subtle shifting them into that direction. Right. And you, you talked about, you mentioned the word collaborative uh, when you were answering that last question. Could you tell us a little bit more about a mental health professional role in the divorce process and kind of how that process would help people talk about these grievances when their spouse is a narcissist or they have borderline personality or whatever the grievance may be and resolving them during the divorce process rather than holding on to the bitterness for years like you were talking about at the beginning of our of our discussion. When we see a couple that's going through a divorce, we try to take them through some basic processes like grieving and then how to co-parent and how to talk. The beauty of being in a collaborative process is that that teaching starts very early and it continues throughout the entire process. So in a collaborative process, you have two lawyers, for one for the, the husband, one for the wife, but the lawyers really don't act in just talking to their, their client. They, they talk to both clients and their, their whole focus is to get them divorced, not to represent and to be litigious, but to, rep, to represent the process. You also have a financial person to help them getting their finances untangled. But the mental health professional is doing more than just leading the meeting and making sure everything goes smooth. He's also monitoring, or she is monitoring the conversation, making sure that everyone is talking in collaborative or um, co-parenting lingo and, and language. We don't talk about possession schedules, for other words. We don't, kids aren't possessions. We talk about time sharing or parent, parent time sharing. Um, we want them to get used to addressing each other. Um, and this is something we often look for in a meeting that one client will say something, or one spouse will say something pretty rough to the other spouse, and it's like up to the mental health professional to stop them and go, hold on, can you say that differently so it can be heard? Or that might not be the best way of putting it. And to hear from a third party, it, they don't get immediately defensive. They're more likely to sit back and go, hold it, maybe I did say that too rough. So doing that, not just at the beginning, but throughout the entire process, sets the couple up to have a much better co-parenting solution and relationship after the divorce. Right. But how to address client who absolutely says, I can't even stand to be in the same room with my significant There's no way I can do a collaborative divorce process. Or, you know, even if it's a modification can't stand to be in the same room with them. There's no way that'll work for us. Um, there, there are two ways. That's a great question. There's two ways to get around that. First of all, sometimes if they can't stand to be in the same room and they're so um, disgusted with the person, it, collaborative might not be the best option, actually. Um, the other thing is, and thanks to COVID, I guess if there's something positive that come out of COVID, we're now doing a lot of it on Zoom. And you don't have to be in the same room. You are in the Zoom room together but you're not in the actual physical same room. And that offers people and spouses some safety. So they don't feel so violated. They don't feel so vulnerable in the same room. They're able to stop their video. They're able to get up and walk away 
we're able to use breakout rooms, and that makes it a lot easier for people. You know, when we do mediation, we'll often caucus, which means that we'll put one spouse in one room, another spouse in another room, and the mediator will go back and forth because it makes it safer. Um, the same thing can happen somewhat similar in a collaborative meeting, except everyone is on the Zoom call, and it makes it a little bit safer for clients, but sometimes it's just even the anger is so in, intense that on a Zoom meeting, they can't control it, and that's what, where possibly collaborative would not be the best choice. Collaborative is a great choice, but it's not for everybody. It's not going to... It's, it's not the panacea for all divorces. Right. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's great when it works, right? <laughs> when it works, it's wonderful. And we, we know that the kids are better. And that's really what parents want to know is what can we do to safeguard the kids as much as possible? There's no way to say that there's no negative impact from divorce, but we can mitigate it we can make it a lot softer and easier for kids. And we've had kids that we've talked to that have been through the collaborative divorce and they have a very different take on it than kids who have been, whose parents have gone through a litigious divorce. Right, right. because I guess you mitigate a lot of the high conflict, I mean, as much as possible, or you keep it contained at least anyways in these sessions or it's not as over and you know in front of the kids i would think in in the collaborative process because it's very there is a time and a place to talk about it between the parties rather than leaving them to to argue over it in front of the kids without you know, professionals being around absolutely exactly remember it's the conflict not the divorce right which right. is the, the most harmful to the children right, right. minimize the conflict they're going to do much better and, you know, talking about kids and their effect on, or the effect of kids, I mentioned, you know, at the beginning that you do reunification therapy. Can you kind of tell us what that is and, you know, how, what, what the role will be and how to help children who have been, either don't want to see one of the parents or haven't seen one of the parents for various reasons in quite some time? Yeah, um, alienation. That's a great question. Alienation is one of the <clears throat> is one of the uh, stock terms that we hear today. Besides narcissism, gaslighting, alienation is a big one. Many times when uh, parents go through the divorce, kids are, feel very conflicted. It depends on the age, um, but they can do very much of a black and white thinking, thinking that dad's all bad, he had an affair, or mom's all bad because she had an affair or dad's leaving mom with no money, and so they'll not want to see the other parent, or that they just feel more comfortable with the parent, and many times that they'll resist going over to the other parent's house. And, and it's just a natural consequence of divorce, depending on the age. We'll see it very commonly with 11 to 13 year old uh, kids, and but especially high school kids, because they're busy. <laughs> they have their own life and, and parents get in the way, <clears throat> excuse me, parents get in the way of their, their life. Um, and often it has nothing to do with alienation. Um, and so we, uh, but there are times that usually when there's a personality disorder, we'll see with either spouse, um, that they will badmouth at the other parent. Now this has been going on for millennia. This is nothing new. I mean, you can, you know, people that are much older 
um, will say, oh yeah, my parents were divorced and my mom always talked bad about my dad or my well, my dad trash talked my mom. And so we never saw her until later and then I realized that dad was just lying to me or vice versa. Um, so this is nothing new, but recently the courts have realized that alienation is a form of emotional abuse and they made it, um, they put it in sort of as a law and that if you get a court custody evaluation that shows that you have been alienation, then you will be um, court ordered to reunification therapist, excuse me, reunification therapy. And what the therapist does is try to reconnect the child with the alienated parent, what we call it re resist and refuse. We, we don't often like to use the word alienation. That's such a strong word and it, that has a very, um, negative connotation, but there are, this does happen, and uh, that happens when the therapy is court-ordered. Um, have you seen circumstances where it's really one of the parents that is pushing away one of the children rather than vice versa? I'm sorry, well, one of the parents is what? So you were talking about how the children, um, you know, could be pulling away from a parent or not wanting to spend time with the parent, but if the parent is pulling away from one of the children, can it have you seen cases like that yes but when the parent pulls away from the children the child or does things that are really not very conducive to parenting it's called estrangement which is really the least favored parent is doing things to make him or her even more unfavorable and harder to come over to that household they might be the i'm just giving you a, a scenario i'm not trying to be gender biased, but a the children live with a mom and they go visit the dad every other weekend. And the dad is <clears throat> not letting these kids talk or he's trying to push and introduce the new girlfriend too quickly. Um, and it's, these are the things that are really pushing the kids away. Um, they try to talk about how they don't like coming over his house because don't, they don't like his food. And he just starts arguing with them. And these are things that are called estrangement. That's really not alienation. Although he can sit there and go, you're doing this because mom told you to say that. That's really not the case. So we see it both ways, that someone can alienate and then other, sometimes people can push their kids away just by just having bad parenting skills. It sounds like, I mean, you know, there's so many nuances to every case. Know, a lot of people come into a divorce or saying, no, I don't need mental health professional help. I'm good. It's the other parent who needs it, or it's my kids who need it. Actually, there's a lot of people who are resistant to even having their kids um, get involved with mental health professionals. But it sounds to me like no matter what the circumstances are, whether it's high conflict or not, someone like you can really help during the actual process. And by getting a mental health professional involved early on, it can really mitigate lo the long-term effects of whatever the case is, whether it's a divorce or a custody. Yes, it, it can. I, I wouldn't say that every case needs it. Um, there, I can think of many times where I've talked to the kids and the parents brought them in because they wanted to make sure they were okay. And the kids were fine and they really were adjusting okay. Um, and the last thing you want to do is put a kid in therapy who doesn't need to be in therapy. That's like kind of going to the pediatrician office and hanging out there. After a while, you're going to get sick. You're going to catch something. So while as much as I want to advocate for therapy and therapists, 
it's not for everybody and it needs to be assessed. Some people aren't aren't ready for it. I tell you what I do find the most helpful and we've been getting a lot more is parents who are getting a divorce and they realize that it's going to be tough and they come to me or come to us asking what's the best way to tell the children. I mm-hmm. thank them profusely. That is because there is a way to tell kids and a format to tell kids that works better. Not great. No one's going to be thrilled and happy, but it can be least damaging. It's going to it's going to really lessen the the shock that the divorce will have on these kids and open and allow them to open up and talk more. And so I like it at the very beginning before parents have even told kids or moved out. Um, on when they come to me and ask for a session or two, what do we tell the kids? How do we tell the kids? When do we tell the kids? Those are very important questions. That's really interesting. I think that's something that a lot of people don't think about and or may disagree on when and how to tell the kids. So that's very interesting because you know most of the time, by the time we a divorce case as lawyers, they've either somebody's being served or they're ready to file immediately. But that's interesting coming to someone like you beforehand from both parties can really help address that for the for the kids. Yeah, we do that about I do that about every, once every two weeks I have a client come in and ask that and I, it's just wonderful. Um, we give them a lot of information, a lot of literature books for the kids to read, depending on the age of the child, obviously. Younger kids, they get kind of a, a coloring book or sort of a storybook with animals, and older kids get books written by teenagers. Um, things like that are just very, very helpful. You know, telling a child, uh, one parent telling the children, it, it's really, it doesn't work too well. I don't care how gentle they are. Um, it usually comes out very biased and very harsh. And so we recommend that both parents tell them. And we find that much better and much easier. And the, and the kids do not feel so much of a divided loyalty. That's the biggest problem with kids. They feel very divided. They, they feel that they have to take a side. And when a parent encourages that, that's where we get the alienation from. Right. Interesting. Well, that's great. Well, we are um, right about at the end of our time and but this has been really fascinating and really helpful and we really appreciate you being on our podcast today and we are going to end it with our fun question that we have been uh, ending each episode with so jamie lee i'll let you ask the the fancy question right it's a difficult one um what is your favorite divorce movie or tv um, favorite is Kramer versus Kramer. That's an old movie. Um, I'm probably dating myself by saying that. Uh, Dustin Hoffman was in it. And what I like about it is not that the couple split, but how Dustin and his son got along. At first, the first scene when the parents divorced, the son was out of control, like many kids are. They're scared about it, and they don't sit there and act in a fearful way, they act in the obnoxious acting out way. That's very, much more common for boys. And this kid was acting out and you saw them about six months later getting along and it was just like clockwork in the morning where these um, dad and the kid got up and got ready for school and work and they got out the door and they just, they were just working beautifully. And I love that because it gives people who are divorced hope. 
their biggest fear is usually the kids. How's it going to affect the kids? And it shows that, yes, it can work and they can get along with the kids. So that's my favorite. Well, that's perfect. I'm going to watch that one now. I haven't seen that one. Yeah, I'll go watch it too. Perfect. Well, thank you again for uh, appearing on our episode today, and we look forward to talking to you again. Thank you very much for having me.